0: Don't know if you are a boxing fan, if you are younger than me, I can almost assure you that you are not a boxing fan because boxing has been lame for about 30 years now, maybe 20 years now, but boxing used to be huge. I, in fact, I bet if you're younger than me, I, I bet you that you probably couldn't name three people who are, who are currently competing at a high level in boxing, May, I mean, you might, might get one or two, maybe, but give me that third. Here's the reality: boxing used to be huge, and th- there have been there have been giant, amazing, charismatic, you, you know, fighters all throughout you know, the past hundred years. I mean, you, you might think of of a guy like Muhammad Ali. He was, you know, he was he was float like a butterfly and, and sting like a bee, and he would. He, he was widely considered by many one of the greatest athletes in uh, in our country's hi- history of the past 100 years. Things things of that nature. You, you might have heard of Muhammad Ali. You might have heard of Frazier. You know, you might you might have heard of, of Atlanta's own, own Evander Holyfield. But to me, to me, this is my opinion. And there's always opinions here, so it doesn't really matter what any of our opinion is. So here's my opinion. There, there's no. There's no tougher fighter over, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years than, than Mike Tyson. Mean, mean Mike Tyson. You know, Mike Tyson, if you look at him now, you probably think he's, he's a little crazy. He's got this, like, half of his face is covered in a, in a tattoo. And, and if you think that he's a little crazy, you're, you're probably right, because he's been hit in the head so many times, and he's given his life to fighting. So crazy that he, when he got in the ring with Evander Holyfield, he, 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 ended, he ended up biting off a portion of his ear. Maybe you remember that. Maybe, again, maybe some of you are too young. I remember it. But here's the reality with, with Mike Tyson Mike Tyson was is, holds the record for being the youngest heavyweight champ of all time. 20 years old. He was the world heavyweight champion in boxing. 20. That that is younger than than 85% of this room right now. 20 years old. King of the world, king of the of the of the mountain for 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 boxing. And 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 with that, he was very confident in his abilities, as one could imagine. And and, and so there'd be guys, you know, 10 years older than with than him, trying to get in the ring with him who've been boxing. Quite a long time, and and they'd have these strategies about how they're gonna beat them. In reality, you know, in, in Tyson's first 20 fights, he, he won them all, I think that's right. And like 17 of the 20 were knockouts. And so, of course, naturally these reporters would come to these guys, his opponents, and they'd say, What are you gonna do when you get in the ring with Tyson? And they would talk about their strategy and they would they would talk about their plan. They would talk about how they've been planning about this for, for in scheming for a while while they think they're the guy that's gonna do it. So then the reporter, naturally, they'd go back to Tyson. Hey, hey did you hear about so-and-so? They said, you know, they're planning on doing this, or they're planning on doing that. And Mike Tyson, the great philosopher that he is, he says something very profound, and maybe you've heard this quote before. He says this, that everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. You can write that down if you like. Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. He knew that. Uh, you think you're going to come in here and you're going to do well, but what's actually going to really, going to test your plan and test your courage and test your endurance and test your faithfulness is going to be that moment when that glove hits your lips. Then we'll see about your plan. Then we'll see about your endurance. We'll see if you can stand in there and take it. Reality is most couldn't. Most couldn't. Most hit the floor very quickly. Reality is it's, Many many speakers since Mike Tyson has said that have used this quote because the reality is it's it's a really good analogy for life. Everybody's got a plan for their life. Everybody's got goals and visions and things they say they want to do until they get hit in the mouth, till they experience suffering, till they experience trials, till till they experience setbacks. You get hit in the mouth. Then it's then it's really then it's really tested. We're entering a a spot in the Gospel of Luke in Luke 22. You can turn in your Bibles if you haven't already, where Jesus is going to begin to experience great suffering, great humiliation. He, he's going to experience. Great trials like he has not before, and it will be like this basically through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. We might think that the only amount of suffering, though, and humiliation that Jesus received was on the cross. However, that's not true. Jesus' life was nothing more than a constant state of, of humiliation. From the moment of his incarnation on, his life was headed downhill at a rapid pace. Consider that the very act of, of leaving heaven, leaving heaven, and coming in and putting on flesh and dwelling among us was an inordinate amount of humiliation. Jesus left the throne where he reigned with no opposition present. He left perfection and he put on flesh. He came in the form of a lowly baby who, who needed to nurse from his mother's womb. Or nurse from his, his mother's bosom. Oh, goodness. He needed to have his diaper changed. And he dealt with the gas pains that every human baby deals with. The eternal Son of God now knew what it meant to experience hunger and temptation and fatigue. Even as Jesus grew and and began his ministry, it was widely met with ridicule and unbelief and ungratefulness. The longer Jesus ministered, the greater his humiliation was. And it was all leading to the lowest moment of Jesus' life, the cross. Today we begin the section of Luke where the road to the cross becomes much clearer and much quicker. However, before proceeding straight to the cross, we witness a moment of significant pain and humiliation for our Savior. In Luke 22, 63-71 we see Jesus literally get hit in the mouth. Literally. The pain on his journey to the cross begins. In the most obvious and shocking way yet, we begin to see the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 most clearly. My main point of my sermon this morning is this, if you're taking notes. The suffering and victory of Christ should give us strength to faithfully persevere in the Christian life. Say it again. The suffering and victory of Christ should give us strength to faithfully persevere in the Christian life. Hopefully you've made your way to Luke chapter 22. Please follow along as I read verses 63 through 71. Luke 22, 63... Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! (laughs) Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. May God bless the reading of his word This morning. Main point the suffering and victory of Christ should give us strength to faithfully persevere in the Christian life. Point one this morning see the Christ who suffered. See the Christ who suffered. We might recall where we're at in in Jesus' story here. You know, Jesus has spent an evening with his. With his disciples in the upper room, partaking of the Lord's Supper, establishing uh, the new covenant, he spends the night praying. and And, and while he prays, his disciples are, are sleeping. They're not they're not ready for what's about to happen. But at the same time, guys like Peter, they're feeling they're feeling confident that, like you know, whatever's ahead, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to leave you, Jesus. I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. I'm, I'm never going to abandon you, Jesus. At the same time, one of the disciples, Judas, he's he's going to to betray Jesus. He leaves the dinner to to, to go meet up with the religious rulers who are who are intent on trying to arrest Jesus. And so, as, as we talked about in the past few weeks, Judas goes and he, and he betrays Jesus. Peter, as Jesus is as Jesus is arrested, Peter sees this and he's and he's. Uh, scared and he's fearful and he denies Jesus three times. You know, a, a few moments earlier, he's like, I'm not going to de- deny you Jesus before anybody. I'm going to cut off a Roman soldier's ear and then a little slave girl comes up and asks him, do you even know Jesus? And he's like, I don't know. I'm too, I'm too scared of this, of, this, of this little little girl here. My How things change as soon as they get hit in the mouth. But we must understand that, that with these religious leaders, Jesus was absolutely despised by the religious leaders. He was hated. We might recall from Luke 19, 47 through through 48 that these religious leaders were intent on killing Jesus. They were intent on, on killing him. Because Jesus was preaching against the hypocrisy of the religious elite in Israel, they saw Jesus as a threat to their system that made much of them. Therefore, those who were supposed to be leading Israel in righteousness, leading them to understand the word of God, they're the ones who were actually plotting murder. They were plotting to kill Jesus. And as, and as Luke chapters 20, 21, and, and 22 progress, we, their plan becomes a little clearer. Rather than, rather than simply killing Jesus in cold blood, Hiring an assassin, killing him in the street, or, or, or whatever, they would seek to have Jesus arrested. They would find something to accuse him of, and have him put to death. And so, as, as Judas as Judas comes and he, and he offers up Jesus to the to the religious leaders, they finally have their shot. They finally have their opportunity to arrest Jesus and put him to death. And at this point. In Luke chapter 22, this morning, we're at that that point where where Jesus has been arrested and he's on trial. He's with the religious leaders. He's abandoned. He's betrayed. And he's about to experience a moment of, of, of great humiliation. I mean, we see this here, don't we? I don't have to explain it to you much. It's not hard to understand. and and verses 63 through 65, we we find Jesus being mocked. We We find Him being beat. We find Him blindfolded. We find Him being made fun of. We find Him being blasphemed. I mean, even the most immature Christian, maybe you're a new Christian, you get it. Jesus is not experiencing a... A moment of joy here, but I I don't want us to miss this. Though I don't want us to miss the fact that Jesus wasn't just simply quickly put on the cross. Jesus didn't just walk up to the cross and and they and they and they hung him on it. I want us to see this here that Jesus was condemned as a criminal. Understand that he was condemned as a criminal. And Jesus wasn't just labeled as a criminal. They didn't just slap the label criminal on Jesus and put him on the cross. He was treated as a criminal. And he he wasn't just condemned as any type of criminal. He was being branded here as as a false teacher. The word of God was being branded a false teacher. He was being branded a heretic and a blasphemer by the religious elite in Israel. And this is... This is very clear in Matthew's gospel. If you, if you go to Matthew chapter 26, you don't have to this morning. We don't have time. But, it, but this week in your study or maybe for conversation on Wednesday night, open your Bible to Matthew 26. Look it up. It gives a little more detail regarding this, uh, this trial. And Matthew provides a bit more of a, a detailed account of Jesus' interaction with these guys. Specifically, Matthew 26, 59 tells us this. That the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. It's not like they were sitting here thinking, well, we're going to actually once and for all figure out if this guy's the Messiah. They weren't seeking truth here. They were plotting murder. They were trying to get Jesus to say something false to put him to death. They sought to condemn Jesus as a blasphemer or a false prophet. And it didn't really matter what they branded him, whether blasphemer, whether a false prophet, kind of didn't really matter. The old covenant called for blasphemers and false prophets to be put to death. In Leviticus 24, 16, it says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. In Deuteronomy 18.20, it calls for false prophets who falsely speak in God's name to be put to death. So if we can make this guy look like he's a false teacher, look like a blasphemer, we have every right, according to the law of God, to twist it for our own purposes, to put this guy to death. Church, do you see their strategy? You see what's going on here? Okay, Good. As we consider our, our text here in, in Luke twenty two sixty three, 63, in, in the midst of this trial, we can see that Jesus was treated like a criminal in every way. Jesus was mocked. Like the one who holds all things together. He was mocked. He was beaten. The one who spoke life into existence, who formed Adam, formed Eve who created created hands and fists and, and muscles and power he was he was beaten by the very things that he created at that at that point he was abused by those whom he created to worship him I mean, one can imagine here how first-century guards treated criminals. I mean, we hear of stories today about, about guards who who abuse and uh, you know fight criminal uh, you know criminals in, in jail. Now we're talking twenty twenty-two when when anything that happens ends up on social media, and we hear it all the time. One can imagine what happened in the first century. I want us to see that Jesus didn't just come and pay a transaction on the cross. I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to diminish the transaction that was paid on the cross. Jesus did pay a transaction on the cross. Absolutely. By his life, by his blood, he bought us out of the slave market. Okay? But Jesus actually came. He didn't just pay a transaction. Jesus came and he took our guilt. Do you understand that? He came and he took our shame. He identified as guilty for us. We are literally the guilty criminals who deserve to be treated like criminals before a holy God. We deserve a criminal's treatment. We deserve the humiliation that Jesus received. He didn't just pay a transaction. I mean, you think about this right now. If, if there was somebody out of the goodness of my heart, I'll just say, Pat, if I, to, if I wanted to call up Georgia Power and pay Pat's Georgia Power bill out of the goodness of my heart, do you know what they would tell me? They would say no. No. I cannot pay Pat's Georgia Power bill. You know why? Because I am not Pat. I can't. I'm not just simply coming here and, and paying a transaction and moving on with my day. Jesus didn't just come and pay a transaction. He identified as us, the guilty. Do you understand? To pay our debt—that is what he did for us. Jesus came and took the identity of the guilty so the guilty could take the identity of the righteous. That is what he did. He took our guilt and gave us his righteousness, the great exchange. It's called substitutionary atonement. That's what happened. He was our substitute in every way. He was identified as a criminal. He was treated like a criminal. He died a criminal's death for us, that we deserved. And the, the, the irony here is in this very moment, Jesus in his, in his righteousness and Jesus in His power could have simply willed that those mocking Him and beating Him dropped dead in that very moment, and Jesus in His holiness would have been good and perfect and holy and justified to do so. Yet Christ kept His eyes on the cross, Jesus was faithful in the midst of suffering. He was obedient to the Father. Jesus was not like Judas who gave into idolatry when it presented itself or Peter who boasted of his ability to remain faithful to the end but couldn't. Even in the midst of great suffering, friends, Jesus was faithful. He was faithful. So, so friends, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with Jesus' suffering? Are these just facts? What is it supposed to produce in us? Why, does, why do the Gospels give us pictures of Jesus' suffering? Could they not have simply just said, Jesus died for your sins, trust in Him, move on. It's paid in full. What does this doctrine do for us? Do the Gospels provide these details for us just to simply feel sorry for poor Jesus? Oh, poor little lamb, Jesus, he came and he suffered for us. He was beaten, he was blindfolded, he was mocked. We should feel sorry for Jesus. I mean, in fact, maybe, maybe we, we sometimes take the, the view of Jesus' suffering that when we just say, oh, well, Jesus did this for you. You should do this for Jesus. Well, we should feel guilty enough just to, we shouldn't ever tell Jesus no. That's what the doctrine of the suffering is supposed to do. Guilt, 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 guilt gonna find that you know you won't find it in the bible the bible actually does tell us how we should consider jesus's suffering especially this suffering right here in hebrews twelve four, it says this consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart Did you hear that consider the one that suffered Consider the one that was hated. Consider the one that was abused. Consider the one that was mocked. Consider the one that was blasphemed against. Consider him who endured such opposition from those that hated him, sinners, so that, for purpose of what, you will not grow weary and lose heart. The suffering of of the faithful Christ should produce And endurance among the people of God. Friends, if we are Christ's disciples, we should expect to suffer. Not a lot of amens on that. We should we we should be prepared to be mocked. We should be prepared. To be condemned. We should be prepared to be hated. We don't talk a lot about that. We talk about the culture. We talk about how much how, how ungodly it is, and it is ungodly, and it is feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket. So write descriptions. But we should be prepared to suffer. I mean, how many times has Jesus already said this in the Gospel of Luke? We should expect persecution. And not only that, we should expect hardships. We should expect disappointments. I mean, isn't it amazing how often we experience hardships and and suffering and persecution or unmet expectations or other unpleasant things in life and immediately assume this, that this is not God's will for my life. Think about it. Isn't that where our minds typically go? When life gets hard, we rarely say this. Uh, At least this is me. And maybe the rest of the church doesn't do this. Maybe this is just me. But when, when life gets hard, we rarely say, God, I want to trust that this is your will for my life right now. Give me strength to be faithful. We rarely say that. Instead, we say, marriage is hard. I must have married the wrong person. My job is hard. I must have the wrong job. Friendships are hard. I must have the wrong friends. Life isn't meeting my expectations. I must not be living out God's calling on my life. Ministry is hard. I must be ministering with the wrong people. Christian, can we not see that our Lord, our Savior, our King, Jesus, he suffered. Suffering marked his life. Our master, he was marked. He was mocked. He was hated. Our Savior, He was beaten. He wasn't taken seriously. He wasn't respected. He was slandered. His motives were called into question. He was was taken advantage of. He was abandoned. He left this earth tired and poor and thirsty. No one in the history of the world experienced trials and suffering like Jesus did. Nobody. Yet, yet, friends, oh, we naively bow our heads and we pray, Lord, make me like Jesus. Do whatever it takes, God. Make me like Jesus. We do it. Friends, we must, listen, church, we must understand what we're praying when we're asking these things from God. We must not forget Jesus' words in Luke 6 where he taught, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Friends, do you really want to be like Jesus? Then you should expect a life of suffering and trials. Now, please don't understand me. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying a life of doom and gloom. (laughs) Not at all. Jesus' life, it wasn't full of doom and gloom. He suffered, but was joyful. He suffered, but he was faithful. He suffered, yet he was without sin. In fact, it was because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Joy was the motive of his suffering, church. Joy! Joy! Do we hear that? Jesus knew that there was great joy in the midst of suffering because it was through suffering that Christ would be most magnified. Therefore, friends, we, his people, his disciples, can have real joy in the midst of suffering. We can. We can remain faithful and obedient in the midst of suffering on our own strength? Absolutely not but because the one who was faithful, he lives in us. Yes, Christ, the hope of glory, church, he lives in us. The spirit of the living God empowers us and changes us, not by telling us that one day all of our hard work will pay off, One day our kids will love us. One day there will be money in the bank. Or that our station in life will all be everything that we ever dreamed of. No, the Spirit doesn't turn our eyes to better earthly circumstances. The Spirit turns our eyes to a faithful Savior. That is what He does. And as we see that faithful Savior, we know that because of Him, we can walk faithfully through any trial, for He lives in us. See the Christ who suffered. Point two: See the Christ who was rejected. We see this is see this in verses sixty six through through sixty eight. We see this as the trial it's a little more formal at this point in, in Luke twenty two. The elders they they gathered together. The religious leaders they they gathered together and. And they, they lead him away to the council and, and they start to question him. If you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Can you imagine what this scene looked like as, as Jesus is brought between these moral, outwardly looking, clean, conservative, well-dressed, well-respected group of people. And Jesus, he, he, he stands before this council, beaten, and bloodied and, and bruised. If there was anyone in the room who might have been on the fence a little bit as to whether Jesus was that, that one who was going to redeem Israel from Rome and, and conquer Rome and be this great military hero and he was going to be everything they ever thought the Messiah was going to be. If there was anybody in the room who was maybe on the fence about that, at this point, they weren't anymore. Jesus did not stand before the council looking like the victor. He stood looking like a failure. He stood looking like a heretic. He looked like a criminal that deserved to be put on death row. The religious leaders proudly, they, they beat their chest, the Pharisees you can imagine, and they, and they said, "See, do you finally see it, guys, that Jesus of Nazareth is who we said he was all along? He's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of man." Are you kidding me? As they arrogantly questioned Jesus as to whether he's the Christ or not, Jesus says this. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. You're not going to believe. And if I ask you, you're not going to answer. In, in other words, they weren't looking for truth. They weren't looking to make a confession based upon truth. They were looking to justify their sinful hearts at all costs. They were looking to condemn the righteous. If they were looking for truth, friends, they would have found it. Throughout his ministry, Jesus clearly revealed himself as the Messiah, he fulfilled every messianic prophecy that pertained to the Christ. His ministry was open and and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in different cities witnessed his power and his preaching and his sinless life. His ministry wasn't hidden. It wasn't like, you know, Joseph Smith who goes and looks in some pot in the woods and finds a bunch of junk and starts Mormonism. Jesus' ministry was incredibly public. He even demonstrated his power to the religious leaders. Suffice it to say this, that the religious leaders' wholesale rejection of Jesus wasn't based upon a lack of intellect. There was nothing more Jesus could have done to make them believe in him. And perhaps you might make an accusation of Jesus this morning. Perhaps you might say, if Jesus is real, why won't he do more to clearly reveal himself to me? Maybe you've thought that. Why can't Jesus step out of heaven, get on Facebook live and say, I'm here. I'm real. Believe in me. That might be you this morning. You might say, if I was only alive in the time that Jesus walked the earth to see the miracles, hear his teaching and observe the resurrection, I would believe in Christ. Friend, in reality, you still wouldn't believe. Your problem isn't a lack of evidence. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence in the world pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. If you'd like to find out more about that evidence, meet me after the service and we will set up a time for, I will give my whole time to, st- to walking you through the Bible. Meet me, at the, meet me down here at the very end or, or any other man in this church for that matter. It doesn't have to be me. Your problem isn't an intellect problem. Your problem is the same as a religious leader's problem here. And as Jesus responds to the religious leader's interrogation, Jesus did not say, you cannot believe. He didn't say you cannot believe. Jesus said this, you will not believe. See, the religious leaders didn't need more facts. They needed new hearts. They denied Christ because their sinful hearts hated him. This is, this is true of anyone who rejects Christ. I mean, you go read Romans. If you're looking for something to read this week, read Romans 1, 18 through 23. It says this, that, that God has, has revealed himself so clearly in this world that anyone who rejects him is without excuse. That includes you. But, but the problem is, as much truth as God has revealed, those who hate God, what they do is they suppress the truth. It's like a fire, and I'm going to suppress the fire. I wanna, I'm going to try and, 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 and put a blanket on the fire and, and snuff it out. That's, that's what foolish hearts do with the truth. They suppress the truth. The reality is that no one seeks after God. Not you. I didn't. I didn't seek after God. Not one bit. Not one fiber of my being sought after God. And I I said in Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. No, not one. And you won't be the first. Why? Because in sinful man's heart, there is no desire to worship God. No desire to seek truth. In sinful man's heart, we apart from God are concerned with one thing, our own glory. And so as we, as we consider what saving faith is and really trusting in, in Christ is, in the Bible, saving faith is not so much a matter of the brain. It is a matter of the heart. It is not as though faith lacks evidence. And it's not as though faith is blind. God has provided an abundance of evidence and truth for thousands of years, highlighting his existence, sovereignty, holiness, goodness, and plan for the world. And never was this ever clearer than when Christ put on flesh and dwelt on earth for 33 years, fulfilling everything God said he would do through the prophets. God has not called us to trust in Christ blindly. He hasn't. In his grace, he has revealed himself to the world. Yet still, faith is a fully a matter of the heart. To put your faith in Christ and your trust in Christ to become a Christian friend is not a matter of mere mental assent. It is a matter of seeing Christ as he is and worshiping him as such. It is not simply acknowledging what happened on the cross. It is treasuring what happened on the cross as the greatest event in the history of the world. It is not simply acknowledging that you have sinned in your life. It is feeling deeply the weight of your sin against the holy God and the accompanying desire to walk with God. It is not simply saying, I want to follow Jesus. It is the joyfully authentic and uncontrollable impulse to pursue Christ with all your heart. That's a Christian. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your brain. No, I'm sorry. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Believe in all your fiber, in all your being, in all that you are, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart for the whole being, all that you are, all that you desire, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We might even remember Peter's sermon in Acts 2. You know, this, at this point, the, Christ is raised. He's, he's ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the, the, the apostles. And, and ultimately, at that point, what happens? They, they go preach. They go, they go preaching In Jerusalem, and in Acts 2, 36 through, through, through 38, Peter preaches this awesome sermon, and he, and he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What happened as he preaches this long sermon? they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? The crowd says, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I went and visited a friend this week who used to work for Chick-fil-A. And she's quite a bit older than me. She has a son who's thirty two years old he used to play football for Georgia and he's you know it's a very sad situation because he's at Emory right now and his, and his heart is on a machine one hundred percent on a machine his heart can do absolutely nothing right now and I was talking with her I went I went and brought food to their to their floor to feed their the hospital staff there on, on their behalf and and uh, I could hear the hopelessness now she's a Christian she has hope, but I could just hear the sadness in her heart of the doctor hasn't given us any good news. He's, a, he's not a candidate for, for, for our heart transplant. And he, she said, we, we need a miracle. We need a miracle because he needs a new heart to live. Friend, that is a picture of salvation. We are hopeless apart from God. Hopeless, apart from God, giving us new hearts. Because intellect, from an intellect standpoint, we can understand what the Bible says. Faith isn't a matter of just understanding. Faith is a matter of trusting and treasuring from the heart. The most foundational part of the new covenant was that God would give everyone in that covenant a new heart. Even though Christ was rejected, he still offers grace. When we truly understand saving faith, we know that it is completely a work of God alone, God who gives the new heart. We understand that. God must work fully in order for us to be saved. We need God. We need the new heart. We need the miracle, and the miracle can only be performed by God. Friends, if if we want to be people who are passionate about making disciples, we need to understand one crucial thing. It is God who opens eyes to see Christ. It is God who gives the new heart. It is not our skilled apologetics. It is not our skilled preaching. It is not our acts of service. Ultimately, everyone who comes to know Christ does so because God has granted them salvation. God gets all the glory. He uses the proclamation of the gospel by his saints to do so. But his saints are not the primary agents of salvific work. God alone is. So if this is true, and we are passionate about seeing people put their faith in Christ, this should result in several responses from us, church. First, we should be people that passionately reject pragmatism in the church. How would I define pragmatism? Any effort, idea, strategy seen as completely necessary and effective to win converts to Christ and or grow the church outside the Proclamation of the Word of God in Prayer. Yes, church, I'm saying that the Lord only uses the Word of God and prayer to bring about revival. Amen. Brian, are you saying that we shouldn't have evangelism strategies? Are you saying we shouldn't have outreach events? Are you saying that we shouldn't be involved in the Hope Center or community vet care or international student ministries? Is that what you're saying? Not at all. Not at all. However, I'm saying that there is no winning strategy other than simply proclaiming the word of God and watching it change hearts. If the primary motive of any outreach that we do is not ultimately to put the word of God before people, it is a failing strategy no matter how many people show up. Again, none of these things are bad. Buildings aren't bad, and staff isn't bad, and, and programs aren't bad, and, and, and a preacher with a good personality, these, these aren't bad. Skilled leaders, they're, they're not bad. But we must understand that it is the word of God that changes hearts. It is. So, If it is true that God must work, we must rely on God. Therefore, we should be people who pray and pray and pray for revival. We should pray that God would open up eyes to see Christ. Do not tell me that you are passionate about making disciples, but you do not pray Do not tell me that you're passionate about evangelism, but you do not pray. Do not tell me that you're passionate about seeing Kennesaw, Ackworth, Georgia, the U.S. come to Christ, but you do not pray. We have a prayer meeting Tuesday. My prayer is that the men of this church would gather and we would pray. And we're not conjuring up anything special. There's a piece of paper we have a bunch of prayer requests on it. We're not trying to get in the mood. We're not trying to set the mood. You know what we're going to do? We're going to pray. We're going to appeal to God in a humble act of submission. I hope to see you there. We must see God act and God move. We cannot conjure it up ourselves. See the Christ who was rejected. See the Christ who suffered. But most importantly, church, this point three, see the Christ who reigns. See the Christ who reigns. In, in verse 69, we see this. Jesus says, This. Jesus said, I'm not even going to give in to your questions. I don't even have a conversation about me being this Messiah. Just know this, friends. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then he said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. As Jesus sat through this interrogation, friends, the religious leaders were simply trying to get Jesus to confess that he was a long-awaited Messiah. But Jesus ups the ante a bit and, and gives them more information than they were hoping for. And Jesus says from that point forward that he would be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now those words might not mean much to you today or they might, might, might not mean much to us. But in that culture, what they would have understood is for, to someone to sit at the right hand of the king would have meant that you have the same power and authority as that king is basically saying you are as authoritative and valuable as that king in that culture. Effectively, Jesus here, clearly, if you want to just write something down, Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh here. That's what he's claiming. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Now, and we can see that this is clearly how they understood it too. I'm not just making this up because what do they say? immediately they say this, oh, you're the Son of God then. It resonated with them. They understood what Jesus was saying. And Jesus uses a weird phrase in the way that it's kind of translated in the English here. He says this, you say that I am. And in case you don't get what he's saying here, Jesus is effectively saying this, you're right in saying that I am. Jesus is giving that affirmation. And ultimately, it is this statement, it is this statement that ultimately leads these religious leaders to bringing Jesus before Pilate. There's such a reality, such, such a confession here is, is what puts the nail in the coffin for Jesus. This, we're going to, I believe, Doug, you're up next week and you're preaching on Pilate. This is, this is what happens. It is this statement, more than anything, that leads to them putting Jesus before Rome and characterizing him as an insurrectionist. See so one can imagine that Jesus looked rather ridiculous here. We can imagine that he looked ridiculous standing before this group of religious leaders. In their minds, there's zero chance that God would come to earth and dwell among man. God certainly wouldn't live in Nazareth. God wouldn't associate with the poor and the downcast. God wouldn't befriend sinners. He wouldn't touch lepers, He wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. God certainly wouldn't tolerate Rome. And most importantly, God God would be on their side, right? Validating their lives, validating their decisions and their doctrine. Never would God stand bruised and bloodied and beaten before men. Never would God receive capital punishment. If there was one thing they were sure of, it was that Jesus of Nazareth certainly wasn't God and wouldn't rule and reign anywhere from that time forward. They were sure of that. Therefore, they delivered Jesus over to Rome, where he was branded an insurrectionist. And Rome placed him on a cross and put him to death. From that point forward, those that rejected Jesus thought that they were finished with Jesus. Their work was done. However, we know that Christ rose from the grave victoriously, defeating sin and death once and for all. You see, he came and he he appeared before the disciples. He appeared to Peter. He he appeared to James. He appeared to 500 people at one time. Friends, Jesus, Jesus lives. In fact, Jesus stayed 40 days on earth after his resurrection, according to Acts chapter 1. As we get into the book of Acts, we we see Jesus ascending to heaven, and and we might think that like Peter and the apostles, they're like, okay, we're taking it from here, Jesus, and so and so Jesus, he just he just hands off the 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 reins to the ministry, and 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 he just has a hand hands off approach to the world. You know, Jesus Jesus is like on some heavenly vacation. We might think that, and one day, maybe maybe one day. Jesus is going to be in control again. Maybe one day, Jesus is going to have authority again. Maybe maybe one, one day, Jesus will be king. However, friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. You see, before Jesus ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples this. He says, some authority in heaven and, and some authority on earth has been given to me. Right? Is that what your Bible says? And it's not what my Bible says. My Bible says this, that all authority in heaven, all of it, all, all means what? It means all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. It is in that authority that he commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, the one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, he says this, go, make disciples. It's amazing to me. A government tells you to wear a mask. A grocery store tells you to wear a mask. And you hop, put on that mask. The king of kings, all authority in heaven and earth, tells us to make disciples. And we're like, No. No. Doing that. Not only this, it's not just Matthew 28. We we got Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 7 through 10 says this that you have crowned him with glory and, and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Everything? Well, Brian, clearly the author of Hebrews got it wrong because have you seen the world? Have you seen the world? Have you seen the transgenderism? Have you seen the abortion? Have you seen the lying and the corruption? Have you seen it all, Brian? It doesn't look to me like everything is under Jesus' feet. The writer of Hebrews goes on, he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Wait, so, wait 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 so you so you're telling me this that, that that everything i see going on in the world right now is under christ's control everything every emotion every every bad thing every good thing every victory every loss it's all under control of jesus now that's what the bible says but it goes on at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him well that explains it that Christ is sovereign. Christ is in control. All authority has been given to Christ. He is ruling. He is reigning. But there's a certain point of, re- of restraint. That, that, that Christ is, is obviously like he did for Joseph, working all of these bad things together for his glory and for the good of his people. But at times it doesn't look like it. When our life is hard, we're thinking, you must not be in control, Christ. Christ is in control. And he's working all of these things for your good and his glory. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It is through his suffering and because of his suffering that he is crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, it says this in, in Hebrews 2.10, if you keep reading for it, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation. That is Jesus perfect through suffering. It's saying this, that Jesus is more worthy of all glory and honor and praise forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because of his suffering there was great victory, friends, in the suffering of Jesus. Great victory. Finally, one, one more passage to consider about the, the reigning of Jesus Revelation 5. We know this, we, we, we read it a lot. We read in Revelation 5 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, he's conquered. In the midst of this world, in the midst of this world, and everything you see in it, know this, that Christ has conquered. He's a conqueror. He's a ruler. So that he can open the scroll in its heavens, and if I'm yelling, it's because I'm happy, not mad. Would you just hear me here? And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, and it had been slain. It had suffered. It it had been rejected with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, and 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 he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You see the imagery here. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. Before the Lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. You're worthy for you were slain. You were worthy for you suffered. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. and priests to our God, and they shall reign. God reigns, and you know what? God's people will reign with him. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, and ever, and ever. Friends, Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Let His glory fill the earth. As we close this morning, we must understand this. That the religious leaders, they, they, they looked at the current circumstances. They looked at Jesus. They looked at Him bloodied. They looked at Him beaten. And they missed Jesus' authority. They missed it. Can we confess for one moment that we are often guilty of the same thing. If we're honest, we can be guilty of the same haughty attitudes towards God. We might proclaim with our lips that Jesus reigns, but we live as if he doesn't. We look at the culture around us and assume that Christ isn't on the throne. When the expected red wave turns into a red w- ripple, we turn hopeless. When more and more people are supposedly leaving the Christian faith in America, we start to panic panic. When Christian leaders publicly fail, we feel despair. When our churches aren't growing, we assume that something must be wrong. When we look around the world and see that 245 million Christians around the world experience high levels of persecution for their faith, we might wonder where God is in all of this. Instead of turning to Christ, we turn to earthly powers, money, Influence, self-help, philosophies, education, etc. in order to try and make things right. If we could just get the politicians in office, then maybe Christ could reign. If we could just get a few more Christians in Hollywood, maybe Christ would reign. If we could get a few more Christians in in, in education or in banking industry or in business, maybe Christ could reign. However, we must remember this church that Jesus does reign. Christ said he would build his church. And guess what? He is building it. And understand this, that he is the builder, not us. He is the builder, not the culture. He is building his church on his timetable and his power. In his sovereign reign, he sustains the church. In his time and in his power, he sanctifies his people to make them more like Christ. In his power, he establishes kings and tears down kings. In his reign, he takes life and he gives life. In his power, he upholds all things according to the power of his word. He protects his people. He provides for his people. He holds his people. He brings us safely into his kingdom. And this king also calls the citizens of that kingdom to give the rest of their lives to the building of that kingdom. These truths should radically change the way we live, Community Bible Church. The suffering of Christ and the reign of Christ should radically change our lives. We need not be bitter. We need not be hopeless. We need not be fearful. And we need not fear, feel angst. Friends, hear me. Jesus reigns. He reigns. So whatever you're dealing with in life today, it might be a struggling marriage. It might be struggling just, just with joy in this life and expectations. It might be family. It might be money. It might be health. It might be anything. Understand this, Christian. That Jesus reigns. That Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over your situation. He's sovereign over your circumstances. He is sovereign over this church. He's sovereign over your marriage. And, and, and my hope for you this morning is not that you would put your hope in better circumstances, but you would put your hope in a good and holy, sovereign king that is above all. And that would bring you great courage and hope today. Amen.